The topic is still the four foundations of mindfulness. But tonight I'm going to talk about four skillful spiritual virtues or qualities that support mindfulness, support sati, associated skillful states, and how they, how they help sustain, deepen, uh, and nurture the, the continuity of sati. These four are confidence, courage, acceptance, and simplicity. One of the first things I remember my teacher saying to me when I arrived at the Mahasi Meditation Center uh, 22 or 3 years ago was, and still rings so true in my heart, he said, all of spiritual practice is the awakening and deepening of faith. Faith is this first supporting virtue of mindfulness. In the Pali word, sada, means confidence or trust or conviction or devotion. It's what initially perhaps turns the mind toward the possibility of a path of fulfillment and liberation. And if we have the paramis, if we have the ear, you know, we take the next steps. Its, it's fruition is in the wisdom. But it, it has many intermediate stages. It begins with a tender, you know, young stage of, of uh, faith or confidence. You know, we, we just step into the waters, listen to our first Dharma talks or read the books, come to a day-long or weekend or sometimes even a, a much longer retreat. Just jump in. We'll find that um, faith becomes like the protective hand of the Buddha on our shoulder. Becomes that which makes us feel that there is a path to liberation and we can do it. Just take another step, integrate it into our bodies, into our minds, do the practice, see for ourselves, it becomes wisdom, and that wisdom increases or matures the faith. In the beginning, we, you know, we hear talk about just trying to follow the breath, get the mind concentrated or the body our anchor on uh, awareness itself, get a sense of this interrelated play of mind and body. You just can't separate them. There's not a single thought that does not have an effect on the body, whether we experience it or not. You know, and usually vice versa. Any, any sensation of any degree of, of uh, uh, force or intensity or even subtlety, when we're really mindful and open, has its effect in the mind. So one of the first things that we begin to attune to is this intricate, interrelated, interconnected, cause-effect relationship of this 
mind-body complex, this field of energy that we call the mind and body. We can never separate. We can attune to the differences. You know, the body is an elemental flow guided by the laws of the universe, the laws of Dharma. At first, it seems, as we've seen, quite chaotic and um, a random sensation here, sensation there. But we've seen as, it, as the concentration grows quieter, you know, that there's, there's some meaningful guiding principle to everything, even those, you know, out of nowhere intense sensations somewhere that there shouldn't be one. You know, I don't, I've never had any injury or chronic pain there. And this is what we've been calling Dhamma pain or karmic knots and so forth. You know, so we investigate that, and often through the body, we discover a number of intricate and detailed and very dharmically lawful and mental states and qualities and behaviors, just as unique as in the body. And it goes back and forth. We see this interplay, this stream of physical elements, this stream of mental elements, and how they affect each other. Just glimpses now and again, it's enough. We're not trying to get, create some overriding you know, intellectual principle of, of how it all works. Intuitive wisdom is not rational, it's not linear, it's not logical. Again and again we have to come back to our, our visceral gut, our center, and just know that those little few moments of insight in which there was no words for, imprinted in our consciousness, something of significance, some turning of the mind further into our path of practice. We get inspired. Energy arises. That energy is a support for sustained mindfulness, sustained sati. And that sati is the cause for more collectedness, Samadhi, non-distractedness of mind, that protects the mind from the hindrances, from temptation and intimidation and shame and all those forces. And then we see clearly. That's the wisdom part. And that cycles back into, into the faith, giving us more confidence, more trust in this unfurling of the heart and mind process greater into the mystery of it. Obviously, the first thing we confront, and it's been talked about in, in past talks, is doubt. It's the opposite of confidence, opposite of trust. And doubt is a, a difficult mental state to immediately have an understanding or insight or feel for. Why? Because its very nature is to delude, bewilder, confuse the mind. Doubt gathers in a whole bunch of other difficult states of mind and then disguises them so we can't see them. We don't know what's going on. The first few weeks uh, in the, the Mahasi Center in Rangoon uh, in 1981, 82, 
I, uh, you know, it's like landing in another planet. I planned for a really a long time for this unlimited period of practice to ordain, take care of all the things uh, at home, and I arrived at this place. Everything is unfamiliar. The food, the comfort, you know, the friends aren't there. Can't pick up the telephone, no distractions, no TV, no fridge. You get up at 3 a.m., you practice till 11. You sit and you walk, and you sit and you walk. You wash your robes at a certain time. You go to a Dhamma talk. You have an interview. And these days, interviews were every day. And I felt, you know, I didn't know what I felt, which is often what doubt does. But I really felt estranged and disconnected. Uh, the first thing I realized is when I got go back to my meditation cell, I just fetalized on my on the bed, you know, and weep and cry, and what's going on? And you know, then I'd feel deep longing, and I'd feel loneliness, and I'd feel just the strangeness of it all, you know. Then the 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 first hit of Burmese curries, they don't settle so well in the belly. <laughs> Running to the bathroom and, you know, it's not your own bathroom and not Western toilets. And you have to learn how to you know, squat down and do all these unusual things. And plus, I didn't know how to wear the robes, so they're always falling off at the wrong time <laughs> in the wrong situation. So along comes to my rescue some younger monk just come from Sri Lanka. And, and he's, just, he's just looking for a project. And here I was. <laughs> looking for a distraction because he wasn't doing the practice so much himself. He knew how to wear the robes. He needed me more than I needed him. <laughs> But I really needed to know how to wear the robes because every time I do the bowing to the side owl, or you know, you bow before and after interviews, before and after talks, before and after meals, before and after sittings. You could bow as much as 90 times a day. I counted them. I got good exercise from from them before I understood really, you know, the deeper beautiful sense, sensitivity, reverence of bowing. Uh, so this guy would he'd just show up when I least needed him, you know. So I think my robes are okay, and then he'd pull something on, and, and they'd fall down. Just <laughs> so, see, you're not wearing them right. You got to put them on like this, and the belt goes like this, and the upper robe goes like this. And so, okay, thanks, Bonte, thanks, Bonte. And then he'd I get in line for the meals. I'd feel for a while I'm safe, you know because actually he had formerly been a, a um, full bhikkhu that then took the lower ordination of novice so he could travel and handle money and whatnot and come to Burma. And he hadn't taken the higher ordination yet. Uh, so legitimately, I was a senior, senior to him. He should have been behind me, but he always came in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> and from this you know, beautiful brown Burmese bald head, there's this big fat white man's <laughs> bald head, and there he was, and I had no choice but to kind of follow him along, and then 
he'd make me sit at the same table and so forth. After a while, I just began to feel really hum more humiliated by him than, and, and, uh, you know, and, and I felt like I started getting really judgmental. God, this guy's you know, really arrogant. And he was, was really helping me. Uh, but I got more and more into my place of, of feeling uh, estranged and, and, uh, and afraid and uh, contracted and withdrawn. I couldn't do the... I'd walk, but I wasn't walking. I'd sit, but I wasn't really present and listened to the Dhamma talks, couldn't really hear it. Uh, and then as I got to know my teacher, feel a little more trust, I began to be more honest in my reporting and saying, you know, I'm really having a lot of trouble. I'm not really able to, I don't really feel here. I, I, I feel, I, I'm really having difficulty staying in the present moment and, and following uh, the form of the retreat and four hours of sleep and the food is, is a problem and I, I miss my home and my family and, and the, the, the bed is so thin and the pillows are so uncomfortable and I'm not sleeping well. And, and then he just laughed. And he said, you know, you're experiencing doubt. It's just a hindrance. just a mind state. It's impermanent. It's not self. But it's hard to... It's hard to get glimpses of the nature of doubt. It has so many other mental states with it. Tell me some of the feelings you're feeling. So I told him all the feelings I'd just been telling you. you know, Longing and loneliness and fear and shame and, and weeping and, uh, you know, this other guy really bugging me and so forth. And he said, well, each time, each time, that mental sensation comes up, you know, recognize it, feel it. See if you can, you know, locate it in your experience, gonna really open to it. Uh, and then, you know, when it's not there, come back to your breath. Well, you know, I began to do that. Each time a different component of this large cloud of doubt came up, I tried to zero in, rather than being lost in the fog, to zero in on something tangible, something with texture, something with temperature. And I would discover it. Oh, this is longing. You know, and then the approach of the other monk. I finally found a way to deal with them. I, I invented a, a label. Now this isn't, I'm not suggesting, this isn't the most skillful label you should, you should use. And it's not the purpose of labels. <laughs> <laughs> but I labeled him H-O for the hated one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the truth is, it, it really helped, you know. Oh, here comes H-O. Aversion, you know, aversion, <laughs> ill will, ill will, <laughs> hatred, wanting to run away, and so forth. But because I could start to label that, I could really feel the feelings, you know. And at first, the HO was a projection, of course, because we're not supposed to use labels as anything descriptive. Labels are, are if we use them, they're meant to help connect awareness with the object. So the object then can immerse, sustain, and feel the experience from within the experience, not from our head. So 
you know, then this started to begin working. I had, I felt more energy, and I could feel all these emotions as they came up. And then, and then there was a clarity that developed around doubt. The confidence grew greater than the doubt, and the trust that something's working here. And I could walk, and I could feel walking from within walking. I could sit, and I could feel my body from within the body, and feel a lot of my mental states and emotions from within the emotions, within the mental states. And I grew more concentrated and more happier. And even when H.O. began coming, I still labeled him H.O., but I was, began to be happy to see him. Plus, I could wear my robes better anyway. <laughs> So it begins as a tender faith and has the danger of becoming a blind faith where we, we just do what we hear rather than take it in and see for ourselves. Someone gives us an instruction and, and whether they say we're doing right or you know, correct our error, doesn't, it doesn't matter what any teacher says to us. What matters is that we take it in and see for ourselves. We may trust the instruction, but still, we need to take it in and see for ourselves. Otherwise, it's a very dependent kind of confidence and trust. Real trust is something that arises from our depth and, is, and, and moves to only toward one direction, unshakability. There's no one or nothing outside of ourselves that can say, that we're not experiencing what we're experiencing. So it, it begins to grow as we start to see the nature of these streams of what we call this mind-body, nama-rupa, physicality, mentality, and their interrelationship with each other. And then there are more universal behaviors. The flow, the process of change. And because of their process of change, there the uncertainty, no ground to ultimately stand on. We're standing on quicksand or, or, or sand on the beach when waves come and take the sand beneath our feet and they sink down a little bit. That's life, moment to moment. We begin to tune more into that with less fear and tune in more to the uncontrollability of experience and the need to try and control experience, the anatta, the selfless nature of the laws, law of the universe, the lawfulness of Dhamma. Confidence has a quality of moving forward. Uh, in the commentaries, it call, it's called the venturing spirit, kind of a fearlessness to risk going beyond what we know risk going beyond our usual comforts, little attachments that, where we hang our self-image, where we hang our sense of being secure, safe, comfortable. We're willing to, to challenge ourselves to step more into the mystery, knowing that there's no real progress in insight if, if we continue to cling to the idea of ourself, to the interpretation of ourself or others. All our insights through inference attune us to how it is for all of us. 
this venturing forth spirit, spirit takes us across uncharted landscapes within. Uh, and we start to let go of those securities and comfort zones. There, this is the 25th anniversary of a childhood surfing friend I knew. His name was Eddie Aikau. 25 uh, years ago, he was lost at sea. His story was a, was a myth. He left high school at 16 because his calling was the sea. So he worked part-time in a pineapple cannery and just surfed. And his love was the sea. His love was the ocean. His love was the, ocean, it was the waves. Uh, and he, he gradually became more confident in his skills. Uh, and then eventually was surfing the very large waves on the north shore of Oahu, which is Waimea Bay, Sunset Beach, Bonsai Pipeline. You know, and sometimes just there's just one turning event in someone's life that affects the rest of, her, rest of their life. So Eddie was a local and relatively unknown. Uh, but there was one Wednesday in the, in the 60s. And the waves were tremendous coming out of the northwest. 20, and then 25, and then 30, and then 35 feet taller than this ceiling, and there's only a handful, especially in those days, of, of skilled surfers who would go out in, in that size of waves and put themselves in that kind of danger zone. And Eddie happened to be the furthest out. He had a kind of extrasensory perception. Uh, I could see on the horizon the the appearance of, of swells. It might look at like a mirage at first. So he paddled further out. So he was way out and then kind of way inside the pocket. That is, the wave might break way off to the right side, which is the direction you catch these Waimea waves. He was way to the left. And all the other surfers were, were more inside where the previous sets had been coming. This set came, and all the surfers inside were wiped out. They, were, they weren't far enough out. The people on the beach all stood up, you know, and the binoculars went out and the long lens cameras. And there was some surfer out there riding red board and white shorts, tan body, and all of a sudden just torquing down the largest wave anyone had ever ridden, uh, torquing his body and uh, making the drop and coming back up the wave and just barely making this massive mountain of water. Who was that? Everyone wanted. And then from that day on, everyone knew who Eddie was. And, and soon he became a lifeguard, actually, at Waimea Bay. No one knows for sure, but it, uh, surely he saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives over the many, many years. And then in the uh, late 70s, after the, the, the Hokulea double-hull sailing Polynesian voyaging canoe that I talked about before was built, 
he wanted to go on this second journey to Tahiti. He wanted to be part of pulling the island out of the sea. It was the early years. This was 1978. It's the early years of these voyaging canoes. And, you know, people were just rediscovering what hadn't been done for 600 years. Uh, and so there were about 18 women, men, crew people. And they were warned not to go. A storm was coming and was back and forth. And there was politics involved. And finally, they, you know, they said, all right, we'll, we'll go. So they were sailing on the way to Tahiti. They were just halfway between our island of Oahu and Molokai, small island about 30 miles away. And this huge gale force storm came up, 12-foot seas. One hull began leaking and then listing, and then the double hull canoe flipped, like 11 o'clock at night. And they all hung like opihi, shrimp, in the hulls of the boat clinging all night long, getting cold and radio they lost. And next day, they, they felt they were drifting away from the sea lanes and air uh, passenger lanes. Eddie kept asking his captain, you know, let me paddle, let me paddle. His surfboard was still tied to the hokulea. And captain kept saying, no, no, it was too dangerous. They were drifting, and they were drifting, and they were drifting, and the day was getting later and later and later. Like, uh, so finally, the captain said, okay, it probably was impossible that Eddie wouldn't have gone anyway. Tied himself to his 12-foot big, big wave surfboard, wet weather gear, and set out. Within 100 yards, he took off the wet weather gear because it was just in the way of his paddling. And uh, people would see him, you know, rise up, peek over a crest, and then disappear. And before long, they couldn't see him anymore. He was trying to make it to a smaller island uh, called Lanai, about 12 miles away. And, uh, you know, it was um, Eddie's last, last voyage. It was his last uh, attempt at saving lives. He, he gave his life uh, to help his, his mates. Some 10, 15 years later, the Eddie myth grew really large, and we started seeing bumper stickers and T-shirts and board shorts that said Eddie would go. Tourists would come and, you know, who's Eddie? Where was he going? You know, And they'd learn that uh, he was this person who was fearless on ways, that is, he would, no big wave surfer who's honest would say they're not afraid of these ways, but just facing that fear and, and overcoming it with this venturing spirit, dropping down these immense mountainous waves and, and trying to make it. And fearless in saving hundreds of lives that he saved, Waimea Bay and other beaches in the North Shore. And certainly, that unconditional love and non-attachment toward his own you know, life, the sacrifice in saving his crew members in that last attempt, the last time Eddie would go. 
Now, the silver lining in all of this is that there was no clear direction where the Polynesian voyaging society was going. And so there were lots of politics involved. Let's end it. Let's stop doing this. Uh, but in fact, Eddie's sacrifice rescued the vision and uplifted it and made it a vision of community, of spiritual connection and resurrection of, of Polynesian spirituality, long lost by the invasion of foreign peoples. So they became very safety-minded, they became very community-minded, they learned how to train, to prepare, to uh, meditate, to envision where they were going. I spoke of, you know, holding the vision of the island in mind, holding it in their, in their gut, and then paying attention through all their senses. That was the result, really. That was Eddie's gift, and that's why it's still a, not only a uh, um, ubiquitous or pervasive movement in Polynesia, but one that has had huge and tremendous effects on concerns of the whole planet, and the ecology and the preservation of the whole planet. Venturing spirit is sada, is faith, confidence, trust. We have it and we must have it to do this practice, you know, to go any deeper than each obstacle we come up against every day, in every sitting, every walking, all the time. A another aspect of sada is its uh, capacity of tranquility. It brings a clarity of mind, a brightness of mind. When suddenly we feel filled with light in the mind and, and we really actually begin to see intuitively and understand this moment-to-moment -moment nature of nama rupa, physical, mental phenomena, appearing, disappearing, their interrelated nature and their nature of, of, of change, changeability, uncertainty uncontrollability, emptiness. The mind becomes really tranquil. Why? Because we're seeing the truth. And the truth always brings this sense of calm and peace, even when it's difficult. We know, every yogi here has gotten sometimes the sense of too close to impermanence. Everything's slipping away. And, and that sort of dharma fear that comes up. You know, or the dukkha we go into with really difficult, painful, sometimes traumatic, you know, anguishing, wrenching feelings, emotions. We really get a hit of the Buddha's first noble truth. Life is difficult. Birth is difficult. Life and aging, decay, death, all really difficult, stressful, challenging. But it's true. And to touch that truth brings a tranquility in, in the midst of the swirlingness of it, brings a peace even, and a powerful, centered calm. So this calm is an aspect of, of this confidence or trust, this sada. I don't think I've said this story, but if I did, I'm saying it again. 
Mano was telling me the first time he went on the voyage to Tahiti, he was sailing on his own. And, and Mao, if you remember, his Micronesian master was there, but wasn't paying attention. And um, a storm came up. And well, before the storm came up, Mao just came out from under his tarp and said, put the storm sails up. Everyone looked around. There's no storm. But they did it anyway, because Mao said to. And then um, he went back under his tarp. You know, I think I've said that the navigators rest about 20 minutes at a time, maybe get a total of three hours sleep in 24 hours. And, and it's enough. They just stay tuned. They stay very tuned to their body, to their senses, and alert. And of course, they have to be rested. They can't be weary. But Nainoa's new at this, and he was freaking out and getting really nervous and, you know, wanted Mao to come out and tell him what to do. The storm came, and everyone put on their storm gear, and everyone was looking to him for confidence, and he, um, he didn't have any. <laughs> so he went to the back of the, back of the gunnels of the hull, one of the hulls, and just propped himself up and pulled his wet weather hood over, kept him from being wet, but they were all freezing. And he was just getting exhausted from worry, from concern. And the navigator is supposed to be the inspiration, you know, to be uh, the person that everyone looks up to. That, yeah, she or he knows where we're going, so what's the problem? Uh, so Nainoa had kind of put that posture there, but inside he was caving in. And he said, you know, Steve, I just, I just all of a sudden felt so at the end, or so nowhere else to go. I, th I thought I was just going to relax and, or go to sleep, you know, or just cave in. So I let go. But then something really strange happened, and I can't really explain it. I felt this warm feeling come over my whole body. And my mind got real bright, real clear, real tranquil. And I don't know how I knew, but I knew where the moon was. You know, if you remember, I talked about how they use the moon and the stars and the turbulent systems, currents, bird migrations, everything as their map, no instruments. I knew where the moon was. Energy back in just a moment and giving orders to the crew, you know, to, to, to turn to the port, such and such degree. And then an hour later, the storm passed, and the moon was just where he knew it was, instinctually, intuitively. It was his first real deep lesson on that, that level, that intuitive, you know, the pico, the center of being way of navigation. The venturing spirit, tranquility, aspects, growing and maturing aspects of sada, confidence, uh, inspiration, conviction, 
eventually total trust in the process of the Dhamma. Joseph spoke the other night about <clears throat> right effort. Right effort is born from the second support of mindfulness, and that is that of virya, is the word. Virya means strength of heart or courageous energy. You can see a lot of overlapping, you know. You can't really separate out these beautiful mental states. They work together. They're they're drawn together by the power of mindfulness, and, and they work in harmony. They are associated, skillful states. So, you know, bits of this confidence we see in this courageous energy uh, required to walk the path. There's no more uh, profound endeavor, in my experience, of being a human being on this planet, no greater work in the world, mo no more difficult work in this world than understanding how our own body and mind works, understanding and getting a feel for our potential. You know, for our fulfilled potential. The capacity we have to awaken the mind and help other beings on this planet, in this entire universe. Delicate, intimate, challenging art of dispelling delusion from the mind, the darkness of delusion with the light of wisdom. I mean, that's the essence. That's what we face every moment. We're either present, fully present, or we're forgetful. So it's either delusion that's in the moment that's skewing or blurring or altering what we see or blocking experience or it's, it's the wisdom, the light of seeing clearly things as they are. Yatta Bhutta, the as it is, is, as it is nature, the suchness of things. Delusion gone, it's the mind of light, of wisdom, of love, of reverence, of compassion, of totally matured faith, trust and confidence. Sariputta was one of the uh, chief disciples of the Buddha. He had two chief nuns, two chief uh, monks. Sariputta was foremost in wisdom. He gave a, a sutta, Dhamma talk, once on honest self-assessment, linked obviously with the courage it takes to look truly at ourselves, at our minds, without judgment, without criticism, without shame. You know, acknowledging all of our sides, all of our flaws, shortcomings, our uh, shadow side, sides that we fear, sides we don't want to show, that we mask. Honest self-assessment, you know, was this truth. It's the only way of going deep within, understanding the mind as it is. So the light can shine forth, the light of the mind. He gave an example of a tarnished bra uh, bronze bowl. It's been sitting and neglected in the corner for a long time. You pick up this bronze bowl, you start 
rubbing it with a cloth. What happens? Its own luminosity begins to shine forth. You know, the tarnish was the, these visiting kalesas, not innate nature in the stream of mind, in the flow of consciousness. Visiting tarnish. Those are the kalesas. You polish, and out comes shining brilliance, luminosity, radiance. So we have to deal with the tarnish. You know, we open them, we open up and deal with the resistance and the fears and, and all the stuff that can come up because of that. Uh, and our every moment of mindfulness is like a polishing. Every once in a while, we get a glimpse of that brightness, that luminosity, the natural free flow. Pandita called it the free flow natural mind. The mind basking in its own, own nature. The other day, Joseph was talking about, you know, how this energy that I'm talking about translates into the right effort and practice, that uh, initial stage that we still need every day when we kind of feel a little scattered or it's, it's not one of our good samadhi days. And we just have to uh, invite up again that spirit of repetition. You know, interest might be gone, but a spirited repetition coming back to the moment. Where's awareness right now? Where is awareness right now? Not what's wrong. Not where I've lost my samadhi. How do I get it back? Never get it back that way. You know, what do I need to do? No, it's just right now, what is arising in awareness? What is to be seen? The initial, Joseph called it, launching. And the persevering effort is that which goes through the obstacles, the resistance, the difficulties, and even the Dhamma pleasures, where it's very easy to get stuck. Oh, this feels good. I like this samadhi. That's what I'm here for. Ooh, the rapture. Nice, tingling thrills, chills up the spine. I'll take that. There's a difference between the enjoyment of pleasant experience, big difference between enjoying pleasant experience and the awareness of the enjoyment of experience. If the enjoyment of pleasant experience of rapture or ecstasy, those pleasant states, calm, concentration, interest, energy, will almost always be, even on the subtlest level, identifying thoughts. Ooh, I like this. This is enjoyable. You know, and, and other mental states that are involved in that, that are sort of gravitating around this fictitious I, or self. 
step back into the, the awareness part, the chitta just what's happening? And there's the awareness of the enjoyment of this rapturous experience, of these tingles, these chills, these pleasant mental states. There's no room for uh, the identifying thoughts. The awareness just pervades. Like all the qualities that we're developing in our in our spiritual practice, energy two, effort two, is dynamic. We don't reach a place where it stays. It doesn't get from that initial or launching launching stage to the booster or persevering stage to that sustained or effortless effort and stay there. It revolves. It ebbs and flows. It's a spiraling cycle of energy. We're affected, all of us, every day by weather, by nutrition, by consciousness, meaning all of all our thoughts and emotions, mental states, and glycarma. You know, we revisit all these levels of energy or effort. Uh, so it's like learning to be to balance. I've used before the, the metaphor of tuning a lute. And then, you know, the celloist, she listens carefully, and even in mid-piece, mid-symphony, she'll tune down or tune up as necessary. The surfer on the wave, the same thing. Like music, waves are ever-changing. Waves are actually circles. We, we just see the half-circle above the water. But the energy line is a complete circle, like this, moving across from its force maybe 6,000 miles or more away. And then we just see the upper part. And so it's just continuously moving, and then it crashes down. Uh, and the, you know, the ex expert surfer, like the expert artist or dancer or athlete, makes it look effortless. They've really put a lot of energy and effort into that. Really put a lot of it in until there's no sense of separation between themselves, the surfboard, and the wave, in the case of the surfer. And the attunement is with this circle of energy. You can feel it even underwater and know how the wave might come up down a few feet away and when to account for that, you know, but the anticipation isn't too far ahead, it's just, it's all very momentary. If you look too far ahead, you lose that balance, you wipe out. But every moment, you know, there's just a new cycle, a new wave appearing of experience in the body and the mind, and the right effort, the attunement, to stay with it, is this, is our mindfulness, awareness, Writing that emotion, that mental element, that mind sensation, that body sensation, sound, or whatever, through its circle.
And then what is the next wave? Are we there for it? Where is awareness? Did we get lost in the last wave? Not, and we're not asking ourselves these intellectually. It's a, instinctually feeling along the experience. The sustainability of this courageous energy or effort is in, in helping the mindfulness develop around its core source of strength, and that's uh, equanimity. That the very purest mindfulness arises out of equanimity. So it's an uh, equanimous mindfulness that, f that finally we feel for moments at a time, completely protected by, effortlessly carried along, and seeing things as they are. Able to be in the tension arc of opposites. Pleasant experiences, unpleasant experiences. Our condition habit, grasp onto the pleasant, run away from the unpleasant. Identify with both. That equanimous mindfulness is just a, a centeredness. It's riding the waves of experience um, and yielding. It has to yield. You have to yield to, to be in, in harmony with these waves. Sometimes I, I refer to the, this equanimous or mindful equanimity of, as a bamboo mine. Its very strength is, is in its vulnerability. You know, bamboo's hollow inside. So the greatest storms bend the bamboo in any and every direction in the tropics. Uh, but because it's hollow and yields, it doesn't break. Brittle breaks. Yielding won't. It yields and comes back to center. So we find fear in the body. We find terror through the body. We find it amorphously. We don't know where it is. It's not in the body, but it's in the mind. All of a sudden, we're in a, a place we don't know, we've never been to before, and what's going on? Where is it coming from? It's so nonverbal. I have no words for it. I have no refuge. Where do I go? What do I do? Many of us have these experiences. Where are you going to find your anchor? Might it be in sounds at that time? Might it be uh, feeling a space around the body? Might it be one area of the body? You know, sometimes the body, it's too, you know, we might feel a lot of fear or terror around the abdomen or chest. And if we go there, we get the feeling of being sucked into a black hole. It's safer to anchor in a wider capacity around the body or somewhere else entirely, like sounds. Sometimes we may fear, feel this compelling intensity that has to do with early or past traumas in the chest, in the back, in the neck, in the throat, in the head, anywhere. And it's there all the time. Uh, and at times we're balanced with it and we, we, we just we feel these sensations, we go through it, we check the attitude of mind that we're not trying to fix it or get rid of it. 
have an agenda with it, but rather a, a faith that the mindfulness itself is its own purifying force. The Dhamma has its own rhythm and agenda and will carry us through it in its own way, in its own time. At other times, you know what leaks in with lower energy or lower trust or confidence is those little thoughts. What happened? Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? What's happening? Will I ever get out? You know, if we don't really feel or hold terror or fear in a mindful place, we get to places of hopelessness and despair where we think we might never ever get out of when you're in those places. What to do? There's often little early warning signs. And in a safe container like this retreat with experienced and competent guides uh, and everyone following the precepts where we feel safe enough, our, our, our psyche, not our intellect, feel safe enough to let material up. And we find the ways, we find the anchors, awareness, body, sounds, whatever, that can begin to hold these deep, fearful, terror places that we may have never, ever visited before. Sometimes it's helpful not to be drawn to where we feel compelled to be drawn, where all the intensity is, but to anchor somewhere else entirely or even do something very intentionally. Upandita said, you know, if you get to a place that's boring, you get to a place that's too fearful, you get to a place where you feel stuck, you get to a place where mindfulness isn't sustaining, and, and very intentionally change the object of your awareness. Anchor somewhere else entirely different. Or you can change postures. You know, you've been with this intense place for a long time. Some of you, you, you know, it revisits every retreat over many, many years. Uh, and it's, the, it's our karmic knot. It's holding a lot, and it's going to break up in its own way, in its own time. Uh, so we, we need to learn to, to back off, give ourselves rest, you know, refill with joy, with energy, interest, confidence. Uh, gratitude, reverence. Uh, both my teacher and his best friend, Shui Men, I've either directly seen them or been given the instruction or friends have been given the instruction sometimes to take a meditative posture you've been taught but maybe rarely practice. Say all your energies around your chest or throat or head. Try to stand for one full hour and put all your awareness into the awareness of the sensations in your feet. You can either feel the sensations of the, your feet or be aware of the sensations of your feet or for those of you who are using awareness of an anchor, be aware of the sensations and the knowing of the sensations in your feet. 
that is the awareness, the pure awareness that's just now arising, directed at the feet. The feet have certain sensations. You can't feel the sensations without that immediate knowing of them. And they are continually changing. So this, this, this moment arising, watching, observing, pure awareness, focused on the sensations in your feet and the knowing of those sensations as they change moment to moment. It's an odd instruction. I, I, my Sayadaw once, I was, you know, I've watched hundreds of interviews of his over the years. I don't know why he did this, but he just had said, he asked one person, stand up against the wall with his eyes open and, and, and do that as long as he can, one or two hours. And later he told me why, and later I saw what the effect it had on him. We teach these forms, but these forms are meant not to be conformed to. You know, it's a basic form, a basic schedule. We talk about the postures, just as the Buddha did. We talk about the domains of mindfulness, just as the Buddha did, but all for good reason. So that we can make the practice our own. Eightfold path isn't outside of ourselves. It is who we are. I'm going to finish the other um, supporting factors in the next talk, so I'm going to close now. But I'm going to close with this um, really important transmission that it was a teaching that Sayadaw once gave me when he, I came in, reported my experience, waited for his instructions, and he just said, the instructions are to do nothing. So I waited for more. <laughs> Saira, what do you mean? Just do nothing. Well, I mean, come back to the breath? No. Well, did I watch the sitting touching or watch, how about six sense doors awareness? No. Well, moment to moment consciousness then? No, don't do anything. Do I walk? Do I sit? Do I lie? Do I stand? Don't do anything. Don't do anything in particular. Just experiment. Go on. And he gave me a little smile. And I went out and tried to do nothing. And went back the next day for a further <laughs> instruction. No, don't try to do nothing. Do nothing. <laughs> you know, and, and eventually he said, in the end, it all goes. The sila, the samadhi, the panya, eightfold path, meditation, it all goes. You let it all go. And when I get through patience and renunciation in the next talk, ex I'll explain that deeper. But hold that now as a crucial attitude. And that attitude is an attitude of non-attachment. Look at your attitude all day long.
check again and again. Look at your mind every time you sit down, every time you're about to walk, every time you're about to reach or eat or brush your teeth or change your clothes. See if you can, if all of your actions of awareness and effort, balancing energy and so forth, can come out of this very spacious attitude of non-attachment. Non-attachment is the same as non-reactivity, is the same as mindful equanimity, the same as being in the midst of things as they are, is in that tension arc of opposites, totally relaxed. Let's do that for a moment. This is baseball season. It's the kind of playoffs, and uh, I don't have a TV or a radio. I don't know what's ever going on. If I want to know what's going on, I ask some of the yogis, who always seem to know what's going on, <laughs> one way or another. But it reminds me of a, um, and I'll talk more about it in the next talk, in, including offering the, the Pali equivalent of this, of this feeling. And the, it's a, the image is, uh, it's a very old in baseball. A player who plays within herself or himself. And that means they know their strengths and limitations, their capabilities and you know what they can't do at any one time or a general sense overall. So to watch them play is grace in motion. It's like an impala just sailing over the African bush. Uh, they may not hit the most home runs, you know, have the highest statistics, but there's, there's, there's beauty in form, poetry in form, because they are within themselves. So I, I didn't get to that part tonight, but I want to leave that along with the attitude of non-attachment. It's really the same. Practice out of your own depth, out of your own limitations, and it changes day to day, changes moment to moment. Have a sense of what you can do and what you can't do according to the energy you have, according to the available samadhi of that time. Practice within yourself. Be within yourself. Play within yourselves. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.